To write a song or to write a manuscript, both require this emotive connection, this passion, this desire. Even the driest academic manuscript laboring over technical specifications, equations, and methods are labors of love, driven by scholars who find themselves pushed to do more, to ask questions, and explore complex ideas. Music, likewise, is that same passionate emotional work, putting feelings, experiences, humanity itself into song, into instrument, and into voice. And so music and writing share the ability to convey a mood, to help you to feel and to think. And in magic moments, there are spaces and times where those moods collide and the music hits just the right note that the author needs to pour their heart onto the page and produce great work. Mood seems to be a fitting theme for exploring the place where music and writing overlap. And in today's episode of The Right Notes, we're going to look at Big Mood. You're listening to The Right Notes with Guy McKendry and John Carter, a podcast about music and the writing process and where the two overlap. Hello, and welcome to The Right Notes, a podcast about music, writing, and the interplay between the two in our weird academic world. I'm John Carter with uh, host Guy McHendry, and today we're talking to the wonderful Jenna Hanchi, an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, Jenna specializes in, well, a really fascinating intersection of health organization, Afrofuturism, post-colonialism, and critical rhetorical theory. Um, giving us kind of some really important insights on things that I think rhetoric and communication scholarship in general have paid far too attention to heretofore. So welcome to the podcast, Jenna. Hi, thank you for having me. I have never been on a podcast before, so I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, First of all, can you tell us just a little bit more about what you study? Um, So I study... um, I usually say rhetorics of international aid and assistance, and particularly thinking about the way that those can be either colonizing or decolonizing forces. So thinking about um, when aid organizations come from the West and work in particularly African contexts, um, are the things that they are doing helping the local community? Are they supporting local leadership? Are they deferring to local leadership? Or are these things that are just coming in from the West and taking over? And so um, that's, that's, that's where I started. And then as I was thinking through aid and what happens in the future, like how do we get to futures where Africans are in charge of their own contexts and it's not being uh, taken over in these neo-colonial ways, I've been thinking a lot about African futurisms and the ways that um, 
Africans are envisioning decolonial futures for their own countries and continent. And so I've been reading a lot of science fiction lately, which has been fun. <laughs> nice. Uh, science fiction is always uh, a good way to get through life. And it's always nice when we can read fun things in the name of research. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the music you write and grade to, but if you had to describe your musical taste just more generally, what might you describe them as? Oh, I, I think my musical tastes are, are strange. I'm sure most people think that too. Um, I like to listen to progressive rock. Um, things such as Yes is one of my favorites. Um, I also really like to, when writing, listen to things that make me feel otherworldly, um, which we'll get to, I think. Um, and then I do like just classic rock. I like um, a lot of hip hop, <laughs> like um, Bongo Flava, which is uh, Tanzanian hip hop. Um, I like instrumental music, movie soundtracks in particular. Mm. Um, I'm pathetic that way. I'm not a real like classical music fan, just a movie soundtrack fan. They make me feel things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm surely missing a lot of things that I really like, but it's all over the place. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you give a presentation, people just don't seem to take you seriously? They're not sure if you're credible and they just are kind of distrustful about your message and they walk away generally not persuaded. It could be that you have a problem with ethos. Now, Ethos is a proud sponsor of the Right Notes podcast, and we have been using Ethos for years to help connect with our audience and convince them that we know what we're talking about, that we have the credibility. And, you know, it's just been really helpful for both John and I to use Ethos sometimes just by having this accrued credibility rebring with us in any room we walk into, and then other times by remembering to take a moment and talk to our audience about why we know what we're doing. We're really grateful for the, the support and sponsorship that Ethos provides for the Right Notes podcast. Just remember, Ethos, you're credible. This is Guy McKendry, and I am here with Jenna Hanchi talking about her music and writing tastes and preferences. So, Jenna, let's just jump in with what is your favorite artist to work to? Or, I guess, playlist, if that's what it is. But if you're starting a project, you're going to be writing, what's your go-to? Okay, there are a couple of things that are my go-to for starting projects. Um, the first one is an album called Childhood Remembered. And this is like a new agey Wyndham Hill sort of album of, um, you know, new age tracks, no lyrics, all have this kind of different feel to them. Like one feels very Russian inspired, another feels very like Irish woods inspired. And um, it's, yep, just a collection of new age artists. 
I don't know why exactly, but that is one of my go-tos. It just gets my brain going. I'm pretty sure that my parents used to listen to it during parties and I would like fall asleep to it as a child. And so now I go back to that. And for some reason it works for me. Um, another one that I go to is Genesis's self-titled album, Genesis, which is not their first album, um, but it's my favorite of their albums. And again, we're getting on this otherworldly vibe. I like to have some sort of like, I'm being transferred into a different sphere. That album has like, you know, kind of like some seafaring songs to it. It has the real intense, heavy mama song, which I love, even though it's like dark and terrible and I'm pretty sure is abusive, but like the way that the song works feel, I don't know, it gets me going in the writing. Um, and what, what is it? There's one more. Oh, the other thing that I listen to all of the time to get started is um, Gregorian Masters of Chant. Uh, have you heard of these, of this group? I think it's a group I, actually. I have. Yeah, I um, put it on right before the interview. It's a good time. Yeah, nice. Okay, yes. So Gregorian Masters of Chant is one of my favorite things to listen to. Don't love all their covers, but I must say that Losing My Religion is probably best when listened to by Gregorian Masters of Chant rather than R.E.M. Hot take. Wow. Also, not true. I really do like R.E.M. <laughs> this one is the one that makes me feel like I'm being transported to another world, which is for some reason what I need for writing. <laughs> so, R.E.M., I, I love to listen to you in the car. Gregorian Masters of Chant, what I'm going to write. I just, uh, so on that note, Michael Sipes' voice is something that just always grabs my attention in this, like, really powerful, moving way to the point where like I have outlawed REM when I'm working because I, I cannot avoid the moment of distraction when he jumps in. I'm just like, whoo, yeah. there it is. Yeah, his voice is so, oh man. I, I'm sorry, I'm now running through like the REM songs in my head <laughs> that immediately grab my attention if they came on, which is many of them. Um, Man yeah. of the Moon is one that like just popped in like every time I hear it. <laughs> I would just love like so I love REM's music and I know uh, he is pulling out uh, a solo album I believe soon or it was just out, but I would just love like a hundred track box set of him covering everything that that would just move me. So hopefully he listens to the podcast. You hear that, Michael Stipe? Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, we so, also have him to thank for one of my favorite movies. I have many favorite movies, but he was, um, he's one of the producers of Saved. Which I is, did huh. not know that. Hmm. Yeah. That is a great Unless movie. there's an, another Michael Stipe in Hollywood, which I don't yeah. think there is. We'll have to follow up uh, after the show uh, on the IMDb <laughs> page. <laughs> um yeah so yeah i can't listen to rem when i'm working because and, and that goes for like most songs with lyrics honestly so i think part of the reason that i end up going to these things that make me feel otherworldly is because when i'm tempted to sing along can't do it 
Um, there's even an album I used to write to a lot, which is the um, collection of Yes um, classics. So it's just called Classic Yes. Um, but I can't anymore because I have it memorized. And even when there aren't words, I sing along to the guitar riffs and to the piano. And so if I'm doing that, I can't write. <laughs> so I end up going for these Gregorian chants where I'm not tempted to sing along or um, new age electronica. So can I ask like, so I like this uh, lyrics distract you. So you want this like otherworldly feel. Does it matter like where in the writing process you are? Like is there something different about what you listen to when you're starting out versus when you're kind of in the, the thick of a project versus maybe doing editing or, or, or proofing? Yeah, I think... I am not sure if there's a difference between when I'm starting out in the thick of the project, maybe though might end up being a little less ethereal otherworldly and a little more kind of driving. Um, when I really need to write something and I'm on a deadline, uh, it can get, I can listen to stuff that's a little more beat driven. Like um, when I was writing my master's thesis, I was on a tight deadline as many master's students end up being on because <laughs> you've procrastinated too far. Um, but I was listening nonstop to the, the Tron soundtrack, the one that came out, you know, around like 2010 or 11. The Daft Punk one? The what? Yeah, the Daft Punk one. So I listened to like the Daft Punk Tron soundtrack while I was doing the heavy lifting of the writing because it just like, pushed me to go forward, you know? Like I was competing and needed to make it through the end of the movie. Again, movie soundtracks coming up. That's your, um, that's your, your go-to, right, in a pinch? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's something, maybe that's what I get in the middle. I need something that it's like inspiring to get me through the slog. And so Tron did that for me. Um, John Williams does that for me because of course he does. Um, yeah, every so often I'll just put on the, the theme from the movie Rosewater because it's like beautiful and, um, uh, anyway, so, or like Hook, that's some damn good music. Everybody forgets <laughs> that the theme is thing. Um, and then at the end though. The end when I'm editing, I can listen to anything when I'm editing. So it'd be whatever strikes my mood, I guess. It doesn't have to be otherworldly anymore. I've like made it, made it through the creative aspect. Um, and then I can kind of open up. So this is John. Oh, oh, sorry. And that's Mojo barking Ooh. in the background. There we go. Here. Yes. Sorry guys. No, we're good. You're good. John, just uh, when she's back and we're ready, cut in with this is John. Yeah. That, okay, cool. Okay, I'm, I'm back. <laughs> Great. So this is John. Um, one of the things I've noticed listening to you talk and reading over the things you sent to us is a lot of people we've talked to or people I talk to in general really like kind of an ambient writing music. But uh, I had written on my notes 
if I was going to define your music as a genre, it would have been like big mood. Um, but you also have this otherworldly. And so what is it about these kind of grandiose, kind of very af- uh, big affect musical pieces that help you write? That's a great question. Um, I, I mean, to be not self-complimentary, I think that I just need to feel like I'm doing something important. <laughs> and um, this makes me feel that way, even when our academic work is going to be read by like five people, you know? Um, but I, I think maybe it can make me feel like this is worth doing. This is really important to write. Like, heroic it's not heroic like please don't take that as a literal comment maybe i should back up and redo this answer i don't know um well i i want to jump in and note that i uh assign one of your essays every time i teach gender communication so um at least in that respect you're far outpacing the audience of five so that's true i got students there (laughs) um yeah, I I think that I think that it is something about um, wanting to tap into an idea that this is meaningful and that the music helps me feel like the work that I'm doing is meaningful um, in in some way, shape, or form. And you know, honestly, even if it only gets to an audience of five, sometimes that can be worth it for. Um, like changing uh, concepts of thought or schemas of thought for getting people to think differently that can happen in ripples and um, or even, you know, writing things can also be a way of changing my own thought. So even if nobody else ends up reading it or citing it, it's still something that has helped to develop uh, my own processes. And I don't know. I think I guess I want to think all of my pieces are valuable in that way, at least, if in no other way. And so maybe the big moods help me do that. I've always been a big affect kind of girl, though, like the way that I relate to many things in life <laughs> is through <laughs> big affects and feelings. I mean, I guess maybe I'm giving these kinds of answers, too, because I'm recently like tapping back into that because during the past year I've been trying to get involved in the community theater scene here in Reno. So I've been auditioning for plays too. And I've just recently spent the past week working on a song to audition for virtually to make a video to audition for Annie. Um, So in my head is like these big musical numbers and there's something about that big mood that I just, yeah, you're right. I tap into and I'm, not exactly sure why. <laughs> what? So just to kind of push uh, laterally from the music you write to, what about grading? Is there, do you listen to music when you grade? Or is it different from what you use when you write? Okay, so I hate grading. And I know everybody hates grading, but I hate grading. So most of the time what I end up doing is not listen to music but turn on a TV show to try to trick myself into thinking I get to do something fun. And then I start grading. Is there like a a specific genre of show that really helps with that? It's got to be something I've watched many times because at some point I do actually get invested in the grading and then I turn down the TV. So it's not distracting anymore, but I need to trick myself into, to, 
to thinking I'm getting to watch TV and that's how I get myself to do grading. You get to do, you get to watch TV if you do grading. And so usually it's something like 30 Rock. I've seen all of the episodes of 30 Rock probably upwards of 10 times. That might be a conservative estimate. Um, or Parks and Recreation. Um, something I've seen a lot of times. And so when I get to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm into this grading now, I turn it down. Cause I always forget, I think about grading as like having to assign numbers to ideas, which I hate. Um, but I forget that it's also about getting to read other people's ideas, which I like. So the TV gets me to a point where I'm, I've realized, oh, I get to read others' ideas and the number's kind of arbitrary. Well, and I think it's interesting too because you you know you throw on that episode of Thirty Rock, but you are looking and watching elsewhere, and so there's this point where that becomes a transition into that as soundtrack for you because you're you're hearing but not watching. Yeah, you're right. So it'd be just kind of a comforting soundtrack, I guess, of something I'm familiar with, something that makes me laugh and makes me happy, and then slowly gets turned down. Yeah, and I, th I just want to acknowledge how meaningful that tension or dichotomy that you noted is between grading as encountering ideas versus assigning numbers, because I don't know about y'all, but I agonize over the number but I like enjoy and love the ideas and, and I just can't resolve that tension. Yeah, I, I less agonize over the number at this point. Um, <laughs> I did for a while, particularly when I was teaching as a grad student at UT Austin, because those students would come in to argue for one point here or there. Like they, they would fight you for points. And so I learned to be anxious about assigning number grades there. But then after coming to UNR, um, these students are um, much less, argue, they, they argue much less about grades. And I've also, I think since then made it very clear in my syllabus if they're unhappy with a grade, that they can come speak to me and if they give me a good argument as to why it should have been higher based on the quality of their work and the rubric that I'm happy to, you know, change it. Um, and so having that policy in place and making it very clear to my students has also made me feel better about assigning the numbers and a little less worried about it. They know they always have the opportunity to come talk to me if they don't think it's fair. Um, I like that. And they also like, I don't know, for me, the class is not about what grade they get. And I know they want to get good grades for, you know, all sorts of reasons that our neoliberal society has hammered into their heads. But um, the important thing for me is that they come out of it being able to think more critically about whatever topic area we've been investigating that semester. And so if they can do that, I don't care if they, you know, perhaps don't have the best grammar mechanics or um, aren't doing API style exactly correctly. So grading on those kinds of platforms makes it also a little easier for me to, um, I don't know, 
I feel better judging the work when it's on the quality of their ideas, um, which some of my other colleagues are not happy with me that I don't take off for APA because they really want to have students that nail APA style. And I just don't think most of our students are going to be writing in APA for the rest of their lives. So sorry, I've gone off on a tangent here. No, you're good. You're all right. Um, I do think uh, this is a good time, though, for us to kind of transition to talk just more generally about the writing process. Uh, John, we're back here with Jenna Hanshi still, and uh, we're going to dive a little bit more into the specifics of writing process. So, you know, gotten a feel of kind of who you are as a scholar, the music you listen to, but tell us a little bit about your actual kind of writing process, the gritty, like, what do you do? How do you start? You know, paper, you can start at paper conception or kind of a day in the life of writing, whatever kind of makes sense to you. Okay. Okay. Um, I think I'm starting to see through talking through this music, my musical taste, that I'm a big idea person um, and a big mood person. So uh, conception of papers comes and then I think about that idea for a long time before it becomes a paper. It's in the back of my head for months, maybe years. There have been papers that have been many years. Um, but then as I am actually coming to the point where I'm ready to write it down, um, I spend a lot of time first collecting notes and quotes and materials. So I go back through books. I write pages and pages of notes, uh, lots of quotes um, from different books. I spend days or weeks doing that. And then I organize, I take all that. And after I've written it all down, meanwhile, I've been kind of like annotating my own thoughts as I've typed up quotes. And then that's developed into like a beginning to an argument. So I take all those notes and quotes and start sticking them in an outline. And then by the time I'm done with that, I basically have a fully formed argument minus the prose. And then I sit down and I binge write that shit. So <laughs> everybody, well, I used to get shit from my partner. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to get shit from my partner where he was like, you're a binge writer and you know, all the academic books say binge write and we should be writing a little bit every day. Um, he's come to terms with it and realized it totally works for me. And it's just what I do. Um, because I've spent months usually collecting notes and making a very detailed outline. And so then, um, once I have like the formation of how the argument works in my head, I feel like I need to get it down on paper. It's all smooth in the writing in one go. So, so yeah. This is, this is Guy, and I want to just jump in to make a note here about this disagreement between you and your partner. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, is, this is not uh, relationship advice, but one, one of the things that, one of the reasons we want to do this podcast and have this discussion is because there is this sense that I think we all internalize of there is an ideal writing process and part of my problem is I don't live up to it. Yeah. And instead, right, we're having this conversation because there are processes that work for different people and we want to talk about that. 
So yeah. sorry, sorry to cut you off uh, and jump into your segment, John, but I just, oh, it's no, so interesting to both of us. And I, to be fair to Graham, like this was during the height of, you know, PhD programs where we're just trying to figure out how to write a dissertation. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, saying this under the like pressures that we're on as grad students. Now, three years out of that, he's like, yeah, do what you need to do. Um, so it's also good, I think, for the grad students on the podcast to know that like the pressure that you're under right now, you will be under other pressures later, but it's not that specific one about writing. Like do what you got to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm now lost track of what question I was answering. Uh, we're just talking a little bit about writing process and you kind of got us to the binge writing stage. And so yeah. I don't know if there were any other kinds of details about your kind of across the arc of a project process you wanted to add. Um, yeah. So once I get to that binge writing stage, I try to like put out as careful a draft as I can. And usually it comes out pretty good the first time um and then though i'll send it to a journal and that'll get rejected and then i figure (laughs) out okay how do i how do i revise this thing um and there are papers that like have had ideas that are big ideas that i really want to get out there that have taken, I'm thinking of one right now that's like on my docket to revise and send out again. I've sent it to maybe two or three journals already. And this has been over a process now of, I wrote this during coursework of my dissertation. So it's at least five or six years that I've been working on the project at this point, but I think it's really important. Um, And so I'm trying to figure out how to rework in Uh, different literature that gives me a different angle to make a different argument um, that one that I think will be better suited to what I've been trying to do this whole time right Mm -hmm. and so revising then is not nearly as cut and dry as um, writing Um, for me I end up needing to get Here's the big mood thing again. I need to get hit with some inspiration and then I will pick up a project and like rewrite it. Um, So sometimes I'll be sitting on something for years, really want to do something with it, but never can really like work up the motivation or I sit down and try and it just doesn't come, nothing comes out. But then I'll be on a walk and I'll just like have this idea pop into my head and rush home and boom, the paper's, the paper's finally where it needs to be. So I'm a big mood, big inspiration, I guess, big affect. (laughs) No, I think this is good though. I I think it's really interesting. So you're the second person we've talked to. And I think it's been really funny because Guy did more of the writing segment last time and he and Ben kind of saw eye to eye ish on the writing process and I, I I'm really identifying with your writing process it's just been kind of fortuitous that we have two kind of very different processes um but they also reflect our our hosts and our guests well um but I think what's interesting then is if as you kind of describe this big inspiration process then what are kind of the big challenges that you really face in this process 
Um, well, I mean, if I don't have inspiration for something and I need to get it done anyway, um, I can be, you know, really disappointed in, in some of the things that I end up with as first drafts or end up submitting. Um, this was more in coursework. Like I was really disappointed with some of the things I submitted as papers because they weren't the big inspiration. They were under this tight deadline. And, um, I think since, um, since starting a job and being not beholden to deadlines like that, um, I've addressed that by just not turning something into a conference. If I don't have something I want to turn into a conference, mm -hmm. um, and not forcing myself to try to write things just to get them out there. Um, but at the same time, you know, dealing with the tenure clock, I feel like a lot of, a lot of people probably feel like they have to put stuff out there, even if they don't want to. Um, I don't do that, but I have, I think more ideas than I need. And so I just end up writing a bunch of stuff anyway. Maybe that's the lesson is that instead of like, by not by not forcing myself to write things because dear God, I need tenure. I've been, um, able to actually tap into all the things that I, I want to write all of the ideas I have by not forcing them and letting them come, um, when they will to refer to 30 rock again, the shower principle, mm -hmm. uh, letting those things strike me has actually worked far more to my benefit so far in my career than attempting to meet, um, whatever you know arbitrary standards are floating in the air that we set for ourselves that we think this will surely be what i need to do to get tenure um i'm not trying to i'm not trying to meet those standards and i'm so far doing a fine job of meeting them by not trying to meet them nice uh that's good so the kind of last writing question that we really want to just kind of dive into is a little bit more of the, the kind of quotidian process, locations of writing, other things that work for you. It sounds like it might be a, a, a little more varied given your um, Kairos energy there, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I am often a couch writer. I will sit on the couch and just type the things out that I'm thinking. But now that um, my partner's home all the time too. We're both home all the time. <laughs> I end up, um, writing on the couch in my office, in my house. So I'll go into the office in my house that has a big desk that I could sit at. <laughs> and, and then I'll end up sitting on the couch and typing. Um, and that, yeah, either the couch downstairs or the couch up here is where I end up doing most of my work. And I'm sure that my back is going to be very angry at me when I'm old for this. Um, if I get that far, we'll see. But um, <laughs> sitting at the table is just like, I don't know why. I just, it just doesn't feel right. It feels, it feels like, I don't know, a, a pressure filled place maybe. And so by sitting on the couch, it's just like, whatever I type is what I type. And you know what, it might be good. It might not. Um, there's a little bit more freedom in sitting on a couch to write um, than there is. And also when the fire's going downstairs, I like that a lot. Turn on the fireplace, have a cup of hot chocolate, 
type, type, type. Sounds like a pretty, pretty magical writing scene. Big mood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, this episode is totally going to be called Big Mood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Guy, you want to take the wrap up? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jenna. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Yeah, we've really enjoyed the conversation and just hearing how you process writing and the music you listen to. We've been joined today by Jenna Hanchi from the University of Nebraska, Reno. Nevada. Sorry, that again. Nope, Nevada. <laughs> ah! That's an outtake. <laughs> this is Guy McKendry, and you are listening to The Right Notes, and we have been talking to Jenna Hanchi, an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. We've really enjoyed talking about music and your writing process, and especially just kind of how uh, you set that big mood to get your big ideas out. Thank you again. Um, thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with y'all, and um, this has been a, my first chance at podcasting. I'm, I'm enjoying it. So, Jenna, we just, one of the ways that we end the show is we share a, a song of the week for us. And, and because you are kind of creative in your playlist and have some pretty pressing health-related music. Why don't you talk to us about what your song of the week would be? All right. My song of the week would be Bobby Wine's Coronavirus Alert. Bobby Wine's a Ugandan artist who produced uh, Coronavirus Alert as a public health uh, PSA for people to be aware of the symptoms of coronavirus and to know what to do. So if you have not already heard it, I would suggest that you check out Bobby Wine's Coronavirus Alert. Um, a second is uh, the Masaka Kids Africa and their song about coronavirus, which is also uh, really fun to watch because they've got some great like dance moves that go with the hand motions that tell people sneeze into your hand, no, sneeze into your elbow, yeah, thumbs up. And they do this little dance that, <laughs> that works as a great PSA for kids. That's great. John, what would uh, your song of the week be? Uh, I think my song of the week this time would be uh, Toy by the Israeli artist Netta. Uh, uh, it's this really fun kind of poppy electronic uh, thing. It's on my mind because it's uh, what would normally be Eurovision season and a friend of a mutual friend of mine and Jenna's has put together an online Eurovision and this song won a couple years ago. It's probably my favorite Eurovision song. And if you're really into just the trashiest of pop music, Eurovision is where it's at to get just a wide range of good pop. Absolutely. And what about you guys? Uh, I feel bad because this is like two episodes in a row where I'm going to push a little country twang and that's not normally my thing. But uh, I, I, my song of the week is going to be John Prine's When I Get to Heaven. Uh, Prine mm -hmm. passed away this week, uh, unfortunately, from COVID-19. And um, he, he is a phenomenal artist and a heartfelt storyteller and actually someone who I listen to when I'm in like the thick of the writing process. 
because there's enough of a of a beat to kind of get me moving on the keys and so he will be greatly missed well that will wrap it up for this episode of the right notes with guy mckendry and john carter our guest was jenna hanchi from the university of nevada reno and we will catch you next time <laughs>